This is the Get Healthy 360 Podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. So welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today, we are honored to have with us Kelda Helen Broys. She's an American tech entrepreneur, business owner, attorney, and Democratic politician. She is senator-elect to be a senator in the state of Wisconsin, which, if you don't know anything about politics, we're getting right into it today. President-elect Kelda Roy, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you, Chris. So let's dive right in. What is a senator? So a state senator or state representative are the people who make laws for each state, much like the U.S. Congress, made up of the House of Representatives and the Senate, make federal laws. We make laws for the state of Wisconsin, and we also appropriate funds for things like education, roads, local government services, and environmental protection, things like that. So it sounds like a state senator would have more direct impact on someone's life than, say, a U.S. senator, because you're directly making the laws that affect that individual state. Well, that's true. For instance, a lot of criminal justice issues are handled at the state level. And, you know, we're providing the funds that, in many cases, directly impact, say, your kid's school and the services that are available in your local communities. So if you haven't been familiar with your state legislature, you should check it out. And especially as, you know, we deal with such gridlock at the federal level, oftentimes, you know, state legislatures are the ones that are making policies that affect people when the federal government fails to act. And how does someone become a senator? Well, you've got to campaign hard. (laughs) So I served in the assembly. I was first elected 12 years ago and I won my seat by knocking on 20,250 doors and just having conversations with people. And um, every state has their own ballot access rules. Usually you have to collect a certain number of nomination signatures, but it's pretty easy to do. You have to generally raise a little bit of money so that you can get your name out there, but you can generally do it just by knocking on doors. And if you've been a community leader and you have a good network of people who are like-minded and want to see you in a position where you can do good, then you're well on your way. Obviously, with the pandemic this spring, I actually left the state legislature after serving two terms and then ran again for an open seat in the state Senate, which I just won during this pandemic. I was not able to knock on any doors. And so instead, I was doing phone calling. We were texting. We were writing postcards. I had a ton of volunteers that were helping me. Over 150 people volunteered in some capacity for this campaign, which was 100% virtual. It was exciting, but I strongly recommend it. If people have any interest in running for office, do it. Whether you win or lose, your life will be changed for the better. I would say if you have a candidate that you like, if you don't want to run, which I think sounds like a lot of work, to be honest with you, (laughs) donating to the person that you believe in really makes a difference, it sounds like. Absolutely. Politics is determined by the people who show up. And so if you don't like something that's happening, find someone else who's running if you're willing to do it yourself and support them. Make a contribution donate monthly to their campaign, get some friends together, throw a little house party for them. I mean, there are so many ways that you can get involved. And I think if we want to have a functioning democracy, it's not something that other people do over there. It's something that all of us have to be involved in every day. 
or our communities are going to suffer. My impression is that there are a lot of people that want to be involved, but they don't necessarily want to take on a full-time job of running for office. And that's understandable. So, because that's a lot of doors you have to knock on. What are some of the direct ways? So let's say someone listens to this podcast and they like you or whoever they like, and they want to help out. What are some of the direct ways, actionable things they can do to support their candidate? Every campaign is different, but the, the main things that we do are talk to voters and get our message out to voters. And so you can do that directly by knocking on doors, making phone calls, doing texting. That's a big way that people are reaching out to folks right now. Writing postcards. If you don't like talking on the phone and you feel like you can't overcome your fear of calling strangers, then you can write postcards to voters or you can give money or host an event, whether a virtual event or in person to raise money because we can use that money to then go reach voters. Ultimately, the goal is to try to get all of your supporters out to the polls on election day so that you can win. You have to sort of leave it all out on the field and, and use every tool at your disposal to try to reach people because everyone's busy, right? We've all got jobs and lives and families and households to run. And so getting people to sort of take the time to pay attention and go out and vote is really important. And that's one reason why we're encouraging people to request your absentee ballot right now so that you can vote by mail. You can do it in the comfort of your own home, wearing your leggings, (laughs) maybe with a glass of wine, and not have to worry about leaving the house on election day and getting there in person. So we're going to jump right into the busyness of... So I'll give the date. So this is recorded on October 1st, 2020. So they just had the first presidential debate. What are your thoughts? Well, it was very difficult to watch. And as an American who really believes in democracy and thinks that this country can do so much better (laughs) if we work hard to improve it, it was very, very difficult to see. And I think that was because we had one candidate, Joe Biden, who was offering solutions, who was talking to voters, who was acting in a respectful presidential manner and trying to have a debate. And we had another candidate, Donald Trump, who was acting like a boorish child, interrupting, yelling, incoherent. And from a substantive level, it was very scary because he was given the opportunity multiple times to denounce white supremacy. He refused to do so and instead issued what sounded like an incitement to violence to a specific white supremacist group. And that's something that's very scary to me as someone who wants my kids to grow up in a world that is peaceful and equitable. And I want to see the advancement of racial justice. So it was very difficult to watch. In all things, there's often, even in really bad things, there's some good. Can you find anything good that Donald Trump said? No, I couldn't find anything good that he said. It's really unfortunate because I think many of us grew up with the idea that both Republicans and Democrats might disagree on the issues, but people who want to step forward and do public service generally want to do so because they're motivated to help their community, right? They want to do things that are good for people and helpful for people. And, you know, and I think that has largely been true throughout our country, even if different parties have different ideas about how to go about that. You know, how do we want to make sure that everybody has access to health insurance? How do we want to make sure that our clean air and clean water are protected and our kids are educated? But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be true anymore with respect to this president. And he's just been an absolutely malicious force on this country, our politics, our media, and he has nothing good to offer this country other than leave office. So let's start with, what are some of the things that you think Biden could have done better? 
Well, I think Biden was in a, a position that you know many of us can armchair quarterback, but when the spotlight is actually on you and you're in the situation, it's hard. I mean, you know, I've gone on Fox News to be interviewed and I'm a liberal Democrat. And so you can always think about like, oh, I would have said this differently, or I wish I would have remembered to make this additional point. But, you know, I think the reality is he performed admirably under the circumstances. And Biden was not my primary choice, but I'm very excited to vote for him because he is the candidate who's going to deliver us from this nightmare that that we've been living under this president. So I think it's also important to remember that Biden is someone who has had a lifelong stuttering problem. And so for him to be, have performed with such grace and dignity and clarity and been able to just ignore the madness, the ranting and constant interruptions that were trying to throw him off and be able to still deliver his message, I think is really admirable. What are some of the key points that Biden made that you like the most? Well, I think, you know, Biden talked about the fact that we need a plan to defeat the coronavirus. Every other country has manage this better than the United States uh, virtually. And if we want to reopen the economy and we want our kids to go back to school, and let me tell you, I have young kids and I really want those things to happen. I own a small business and it's really heartbreaking to hear from all these people whose businesses that they poured their life into are struggling or closing or dying. You know, not to mention, of course, the 210 plus thousand Americans who are dead because Trump had no plan for the coronavirus other than to lie to the American people. To me, having someone who will provide steady, competent leadership and help save our country from this deadly pandemic and help get our economy back on track, to me, that is balm to my ears. Joe Biden, I'm ready for Biden call. (laughs) And, um, you know, we've got a lot of big issues to tackle like climate change and racial justice, making sure that that we can live free from fear of this pandemic, I think is job one. So I think that's a good transition into to COVID. So it, from a healthcare perspective, it seems confusing when you have the political administration directing things in one direction. And for anyone of, so I'm a physician for anyone who isn't familiar. So Dr. Fauci, he's literally the guy when it comes to infectious disease. There's a textbook called Harrison's that all internal medicine doctors read, and then they go on to become infectious disease specialists. But he, he's like the guy when it comes to infectious disease. So it seems interesting to me that administrative direction would be not necessarily aligned with healthcare direction. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the United States wrote the playbook on how to address a deadly pandemic. George W. Bush and Barack Obama both worked very hard to make sure that the United States would be prepared for a pandemic just like this. In fact, they had even done simulations to sort of say that was actually very similar where an H1N1 flu strain from Asia came to the United States and how would we address it and save lives. Yet the Trump administration just threw those in the garbage. And instead of taking action and allowing the healthcare professionals and the epidemiologists to enact the plans that had been put into place, Trump decided that he was going to politicize this and try to use it for his own selfish benefit, regardless of the fact that doing so has caused the deaths of tens and hundreds of thousands of people that were totally unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, it's very disappointing because this is really life or death. I mean, all Americans are going to know somebody who has 
suffered from COVID or has died of COVID. And it didn't have to be this way. We could have used our expertise when there was political interference and Trump put his own political well-being before literally the lives of Americans. I think that really demonstrates why he's not fit to be in elected office. So the fallout of COVID has all of these second order effects, for example, access to healthcare. So Mm -hmm. I know that you worked on a pro-choice project. So some people would argue, and actually I'd be curious to know, why are you pro-choice? Well, I'm pro-choice because I want people to be in charge of their own lives and destinies and families. I think that women are people and, and I think that every person deserves the ability to determine our own destinies. And um, I've always been pro-choice, but since becoming a mother, I'm even more strongly pro-choice because my kids, it's just hard to describe how much a parent loves their kids. I mean, my, my children are my world and I love them more than anything. And I would do anything for them. And every single child deserves to come into the world as loved and cherished and cared for as my kids do. You know, I think what we've seen from those who want to criminalize abortion is not that they actually care about fetal life or human life, because those are the very same people that are opposing access to birth control, that don't support paid family leave, that don't think that poor women should be able to get nutrition assistance or housing assistance. They don't think that we should have the Affordable Care Act, so people shouldn't have access to health care. And they were silent when the Trump administration was ripping children away from their parents and putting them in cages at the border. So I don't want to hear one ounce of crying from the so-called pro-life community. They are not pro-life. They only care about controlling women's bodies. And children are not a punishment for having sex. And that's what we see again and again from right-wing ideologues who want to criminalize abortion. They just want to control women's bodies and treat pregnancy as though it is a punishment to bear so that for women who are too independent. And, um, and I think it's disgraceful and disgusting. And as a mother, this country does worse than almost any other industrialized nation at supporting families and children and mothers. And until we can do better at doing that, I think the um, people who want to criminalize abortion should really focus on trying to make this society a good one and a healthy one for children to be born into. So in a perfect world, every woman that gets pregnant will have a healthy stream of income and have access to perfect health care and have great prenatal care. And then the kid will come home to this very happy family with lots of resources in a perfect world. Mm -hmm. We don't live in a perfect world. So it is hard to understand how someone can say no to a woman to say, no, you have to have the child, but we're also not going to help you support the child. And even if you have the child, we're not going to give you the resources to allow you to work. So how, how is say a single mom or even someone on a limited income going to pay for the child if they can't work, especially if the economy isn't good. So then you have a starving child with no resources. Right. And I mean, I, I think it's important to say that, you know, the vast majority of parents out there do an incredible job raising their kids with limited resources, right? It's not that only people who Um, our middle class or upper middle class can provide what kids need. Kids need love, right? And, you know, having loving, uh, loving adults in their life is the most important thing. But, you know, I also don't want to live in a country where half of Americans are one flat tire away from destitution, right? Where kids don't have enough to eat. I mean, and, and that's, that's where we are. You know, we have a huge, huge 
percentage of our population are working poor. They're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week at multiple jobs and yet still not making enough to, you know, to be above the poverty line, be out of poverty. And that's shameful in the richest country in the world. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's shameful, you know, f- for adults that, that aren't paid what they're worth and that don't have access to basic services like safe housing and healthcare. But it's really shameful that we're allowing children uh, to live in poverty. Um, again, you know, we, we just, we really do much worse than almost every other industrialized country in caring for children and families. And, you know, we haven't even talked about affordable childcare and after school programming and things like that. So as Senator, how can you impact these things that we've just talked about? Well, I'm one of 33 state senators, or I will be come January. There are 99 state representatives in Wisconsin, and we have a governor. And to pass laws, including laws that allocate money to different things like education, nutritional support, Medicaid, uh, and other health care options, you have to have a majority of people in the Senate vote for a bill and a majority of people in the assembly, and then the governor has to sign it. Uh, so um, I'm going to be doing everything I can, and I already have uh, been, <laughs> in trying to build support among my colleagues for these ideas. Um, now, given our, our politics, this is really about electing more Democrats right now because um, – Democrats want to see Wisconsin take the Medicaid expansion so that more people can be covered. Democrats want to see the minimum wage be raised. Democrats let me jump in. To- let me jump right in there. Yeah. So this is a huge issue. It, it's, it's a personal issue because I deal with healthcare, mm-hmm. and I don't. I don't think people really understand this, but the health insurance that you have and the coverage you have directly impacts your care. You could have insurance company A and get some things covered, and if you have a different insurance plan you will get completely different care because that's what's paid for. Right. And the sad thing is right now with the economy the way it is with COVID, um, a lot of people are losing jobs and then they don't have access to healthcare. And the side effect, and then the last time I checked, one of the top reasons, if not the number one reason for people going bankrupt in the US is actually healthcare costs and healthcare yeah. bills. It's not laziness or lack of working. It's just these massive hospital bills. Exactly. Um, I mean, even the people who are lucky enough to have private insurance, quote unquote, good plans still end up often spending a huge amount of money for deductible payments and out-of-pocket costs. And there are limitations on the providers that you can see if that person's in your network or not. So the system of health coverage that we have right now is, to say the least, not ideal, right? If you were designing a system from scratch, you definitely would not say, hey, let's link it to jobs so that anybody who's not working doesn't get good health care. Right now, we ration health care based on your ability to pay, your employment status, and luck. Luck, whether you get a job working for a company that has great health insurance or a company that just has kind of mediocre health insurance, like a high deductible plan or something. So, you know, there are some really important concrete steps that we could take right away that wouldn't cost the state any money. In fact, it would save the state money taking the Medicaid expansion dollars that were offered under Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. And yet Republicans in Wisconsin have refused to accept this money, which would insure over 100,000 more Wisconsinites, would create 10,000 new healthcare jobs, and would help save money in the state long term. 
And when you have more people who are covered with insurance, it lowers the cost of healthcare for all of us. Because right now, one of the things that we see are healthcare providers like hospitals and doctors lose money when somebody doesn't have insurance because nobody can pay you know, a $50,000 or $100,000 bill. So they end up having to write it off. And then that cost gets passed along to all of us or our employers in the form of higher premiums for insurance. So it's all connected. And I'm a supporter uh, long-term of a Medicare for all system. I think we need to have a much more patient-driven and care-driven system rather than one that's profit-driven. But right now in the midst of a pandemic, we need to make sure that we can cover as many people as possible. And that means making the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid a public option and expanding access to Medicaid so that people who are losing their jobs and losing coverage can at least still access care. I think that's really important. I really like that point that you just made because before everyone took for granted that they could get a job or if they lost their their job, they could just get another job. Mm. But with the pandemic, a lot of companies are not hiring. So if you happen to lose your job and you have some sort of pre-existing condition, how are you going to get that covered? And I Mm -hmm. think it's easy. No one would argue that if you have proper nutrition counseling and exercise in the form of physical therapy or a trainer, what have you, that can decrease the risk of diabetes heart conditions, chronic pain, et cetera, but that's not covered. Right. If you want to see a a dietitian in the hospital, it is not covered by, I don't think any insurance plans as far as I know. Well, it's certainly in this country, we have sort of a disease treatment model Mm -hmm. for a lot of medical care rather than a preventive care and wellness model. And I think that stems from the fact that it's really a fee-for-service model, right? If you perform procedure, you are going to get reimbursed for that and the rates are higher than if you uh, are a primary care physician and you spend an hour talking with a patient about how their life is going and what the barriers are for them to addressing their mental health issues or getting better nutrition. And um, until we can actually start compensating healthcare providers at a reasonable rate for doing that high-touch human interaction service that will lead to wellness, it's going to be tough. Moving on from healthcare to law, there's a lot, and they talked about this in the election as well, but there's a lot of unrest right now, and it's coming to light, racial injustice. And in Wisconsin, there's the Jacob Blake shooting, and then there's Kyle Rittenhouse. What are your thoughts on that? Wisconsin has among the worst racial disparities in the nation on nearly every indicator. So when you say that, can you clarify what exactly does that mean? Sure. So what that means is that, for instance, the gap between how it is to live on average as a white person in Wisconsin versus as a, an African-American or a person of color in this state is huge. So things like household income, educational access, and opportunities, healthcare disparities, things like infant mortality and lifespan, the incidence of chronic disease, whether it's you know hypertension or asthma, your exposure to pollutants. And in the criminal justice system is where we see you know some of the worst disparities. Wisconsin actually incarcerates a higher proportion of our African-American males than any other state in the nation. And that's saying something. I mean, Wisconsin is an overwhelmingly white state. And yet, if you look at our prison population, it's so disproportionately filled with Black people and people of color. And um, that's something that I have been concerned about and working on since I was a first-year law student and you know, helped found an ACLU chapter and then went on to work on the Innocence Project. So what is and- the Innocence Project? Because that's, that's a large project. 
Yeah, so the Innocence Project is works with people who have been wrongfully imprisoned. So these are not people who went to prison, but somebody made a mistake at their trial. And so we're going to try to get them out because of a procedural error. These are people who did not commit the crimes for which they're convicted. And this is actually much more common than people think. And one of the ways that we know it's really common is because of DNA evidence. We now have the ability to say hundreds of people have been incarcerated for decades or put on death row for things that they did not do. So literally somebody else did the crime. When you realize how deeply flawed our criminal justice system is, and you look at the way that systemic racism is part of every step of the criminal justice system from policing to what are considered crimes and what are not and how we enforce laws differently against different populations to sentencing disparities and what happens at trial and access to counsel. I mean, every step along the way, the deck is stacked against people of color. And that's why we see such disparate rates. And so I think that the anger out there is very justified and very reasonable that people are in the streets and saying, no, Black lives matter too. And we need to keep on fighting for the kind of structural reform so that Black people don't have to fear getting shot by police just for walking down the street or sleeping in their apartment or going for a run. Any of the things that we've seen Black people murdered for under the guise of law enforcement. Obviously, the movement for Black lives and making sure that we can have police accountability and transform the criminal justice system are big priorities for me. And I have very detailed um, you know, information about my thoughts and plans on my website, which is keldaroys.com, if anybody's curious. But there are a lot of organizations that are working on this. You know, I think it's very scary that we have, for instance, the president inciting white supremacist groups. People- Actually, let me, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Because I think it's clear that they're both the moderator and Joe Biden asked him to denounce white supremacy and he dodged the question. Yeah, he didn't. He said he called out a specific name of a domestic terrorist group, a violent white supremacist group, and he told them to stand back and stand by, which to me sounds like, hey, get ready. I'm going to be calling you soon. And that's how they took it too. I mean, if you look at the reporting that was done on what happened in their social media channels and these white supremacist groups, they said, oh yeah, you know, we're ready to take to the streets, you know, with our guns, we're heavily armed and willing to assault and kill our fellow community members and our neighbors at the behest of this president. And that's very, very scary. You know, we have had months and months of peaceful protests all across the country with very, very minimal violence, other than the violence that I think in many cases was instigated by over-policing or violent police tactics, you know, with few exceptions, where people are calling for justice, calling for equity, and calling for change. And then we've had these extremely violent, dangerous altercations that are the result of these white supremacist groups coming and bringing guns and really toxic racism into the mix and trying to stir up trouble. So there's a movement, defund the police. So what are your thoughts on that? And then what are your thoughts on police reform? Well, in Wisconsin, we're one of the states where about half of the municipal budgets in the state, that's the money that our local government spend on everything from picking up our trash, providing clean water, administering elections, all the things that your local government does, half of that money goes to policing. And that's a huge chunk of money. And I think what we really have to ask is, 
what are we getting for that money? Because if you look at places where they don't spend that much money on policing, it's not like we're much safer in Wisconsin. It's not that we have less crime. In fact, we incarcerate two to three times as many people as our neighboring state of Minnesota. And I just don't think that Wisconsinites are two to three times as bad of people, (laughs) you know, doing as two to three times as many crimes as people in Minnesota. What's different is the amount of resources that we spend on criminalizing certain behaviors and enforcing that rather than on doing things that actually create long-term public safety. For me, the most important thing is that my kids and every kid grow up in safe neighborhoods where they can learn, play, you know, make friends without the fear of being victimized or harmed, right? That's really what we want. We want safe communities. So how do we create public safety? And if you want, you can create public safety by creating a police state. You can say that the Handmaid's Tale world was a safe place because there just wasn't a lot of crime. But that's a really bad and a really expensive way to do it. A much better way to do it is to look at the characteristics that safe communities have and say, how can we make sure that every community has those resources? And it's things like public amenities, safe housing, access to transportation, jobs where people can earn a living wage, good, well-funded schools. All of these things are what make communities strong and neighborhoods safe. And spending all of our money on policing, it just takes away from the other investments that we need to make in real human services and social services that can create safety. So to fund all of this, where's the money coming from? Well, in Wisconsin, you know, we've got a grossly unfair tax burden. Right now, big corporations and the wealthiest among us are not paying their fair share. They've been given a huge break by the current legislature and Governor Walker for eight years, who was just slashing taxes and, you know, giving away public money often, not just saying you don't have to pay taxes, but hey, here's a bunch of public money for your private business. And I think that's wrong. I mean, you know, it's wrong as someone who wants to see more funding for our public schools. And it's also offensive to me as a small business owner to see these huge corporations getting a lot of government largesse and government welfare. And yet, you know, my small business is working diligently to create jobs and make sure we're up to date on our payroll checks and everything like that. So we have plenty of money, but we are just spending it on the wrong things on tax breaks for to help the wealthiest people and corporations avoid paying their fair share and on uh, incarceration rates that are dangerously high and keeping us less safe and not making the investments in things that we should be like schools, child care, health care that will actually help us all be stronger and help increase our tax base. So how would you work on education reform? And speaking with a lot of teachers in Wisconsin, under the previous administration, there were massive salary cuts, a lot of loss of teacher morale. A lot of teachers will say the education system in Wisconsin is broken because of all the, the funding cuts. I think it would be hard to be a teacher, especially with COVID and yeah. people's homeschooling. I think there's a lot, of, a lot more empathy now for teachers who not just have to deal with your children, but 20 to 30 other children um, at the same time all day, which is not an easy job. On top of that, having their pay cut. And on top of that, they have to buy, often buy their own school supplies, markers, which is bizarre to think that you would have to buy supplies for your job. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's stunning thinking of like all these teachers who have been going around buying supplies for all their students and hand delivering them to their students' houses, even during COVID. 
and they're paying for that out of their own pockets. And yet here Trump is getting $70,000 worth of hairstyling and deducting it from his taxes. I mean, the gall of that, you know, and these teachers aren't taking their tax deductions on the, the food and the supplies that they give to kids every day. So I think you're absolutely right. We have a, a retention crisis in education because experienced teachers are leaving the field because they can make more money and be more respected doing many other things. And that's a real problem because one of the most important factors in a child's success is the teacher at the front of the classroom. We expect so much from teachers in schools. We expect them to basically solve every problem that exists in the community, right? It's like, okay, we don't want you to just take these seven or eight hours a day and have a perfect world. We also want you to solve racism and structural inequality and food insecurity. And we want you to be mental health providers. Oh, and we want you to prepare your kids for a potential mass shooting event. And we want you to be calling families and parents and you know, basically being a social worker and connecting people to services. And I think that's really hard and challenging. Teachers are professionals and they need to be respected and treated like the professionals that they are. And they also need to be paid fairly and have the opportunity to have a voice in their workplace, just like any professional would expect that. And, you know, I think Wisconsin can be the education state again, but it's going to require not just an investment of money, although certainly it does require money, but also ensuring that our laws respect the voice of educators and other staff in the schools. So some people would say that you should treat teachers and police officers in the same way, meaning both those jobs are hard jobs. They both have a lot of different roles they have to pay. They have to navigate interpersonal conflict, larger conflict, but also have a, a really a very calm head. So the thought that I've heard is that actually the qualifications needed to be either a police officer or a teacher should be increased. They should mm-hmm. have some sort of degree. They should have ongoing training, not just a weekend a month, but a fair amount of their time, maybe 10, 20% of their time monthly is dedicated to updating their training and running scenarios. For example, if you're a police officer, you should go through de-escalation techniques, learn realistic and viable self-defense, hand-to-hand combat without injuring someone, and then all the way up to tactical training. But Before you get to tactical training, get into all that other stuff. That's a strong skill set. So actually, the argument would be pay teachers and police officers, make it harder to become one. But once you become one, you should be paid very well because you have a hard job. If I am very happy to pay more taxes, if if I call a police officer to my house in the middle of the night because I think someone's breaking in, Mm -hmm. I want someone who's really good at their job. Right. I don't want someone who barely finished school and doesn't really care. They're only a police officer because they can't do anything else. I want someone who's And you don't want someone who's trigger happy either. No, I want someone who's like a list of their class. Right, right. I don't want to be accidentally shot if, (laughs) you know, like I want someone who's really, really good. I think a lot of people would be happy to pay police officers and teachers what Mm -hmm. they're worth. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of demonization of public employees over the past years. And that's, you know, some have used that to great political advantage. But ultimately, we all rely on teachers educating the next generation. I mean, I don't want the doctor that's taking care of me when I'm 70 to have been taught by people who were not didn't like their jobs, weren't qualified for their jobs. I don't want the police officers who are coming to help me in a 
when I've been in a car accident, you know, as you said, to be, you know, the bottom of the barrel, I want them to be the cream of the crop. And that's true for every public employee. We all want people who are performing to the best of their abilities and at a level that that we all deserve and that the public can trust. And you do that by, I think, treating people, all workers with respect and with dignity paying them and compensating them fairly and not by denigrating them and cutting their pay and benefits and treating them like the enemy. So as a small business owner, and you you mentioned that while um, the previous administration, they were pro-business, they were very pro-large business, corporate business, but not pro-small business owner. Mm-hmm. Can you clarify that a little bit more? Because I feel like that distinction is often lost. Yeah. I mean, small businesses create the majority of new jobs. Um, it's smaller firms, new firms that are actually responsible for the majority of the job growth in our state. And so when your economic development strategy is, for instance, Foxconn spending oceans of public money trying to lure one foreign corporation to our little state and ignoring you know the hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs right here in our backyard that are eager to grow something new here in Wisconsin um, and keep it in the community. It's just crazy to me, you know, to think that this kind of chasing this ephemeral big companies and thinking that that's going to solve your economic woes when, you know, the minute they get a better offer, they're just going to be off, you know, to the next state. It's a total race to the bottom and it's bankrupting our <laughs> our state's coffers to do that. I mean, you know, Foxconn, they had a lot of fancy ribbon cuttings and, you know, Scott Walker was banking on that to help him get reelected. But what have they actually built? I mean, they have a couple empty buildings that they've bought around the state, but they really haven't built anything, right? None of the promises have materialized. In fact, even the things that they said they were going to build, they backed off of that pretty quickly and said, no, we're actually not going to build those state-of-the-art TVs. We're going to build some other thing. And they're just not doing anything. Meanwhile, you have the greatest engine of our economy, which is the University of Wisconsin, and our complete system of public higher ed tech colleges and universities. And they've seen their funding cut year after year after year after year. And they're still producing the ideas, the innovation, and the people who could really transform the state economically. And we're doing so very little to encourage that, to make it possible for people to start new businesses, to capitalize on their ideas, and to stay here in Wisconsin and grow their businesses. People are going to other states. We've got a huge brain drain problem. As people migrate to other states that are better for entrepreneurs, have more capital, um, have better benefits like guaranteed healthcare and paid family leave. You know, it's scary to have to start a new business if you don't have a financial lifeline. If you're going to, you know, if you leave your job to start something new, you're going to lose your health insurance. You're going to have no benefits. If you have a kid, you're not going to be able to take any time off. Or if you have an emergency with a loved one, you won't be able to care for them. You're going to lose your retirement. So if we can make it easier for people to start new businesses and grow them here in Wisconsin, that's going to be a much, much better economic bet for our state than just doing this kind of Las Vegas roulette, trying to get some big company to notice us. I really like that last point you made that by having social programs for healthcare and childcare is actually a pro-business thing to do. Absolutely. Yes. And I feel like that connection is often not made in little sound bites on TV. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard, but think about all the people you know who would have retired a couple of years earlier and freed up a, a job for someone young, but they didn't want to because they would lose their health insurance and they weren't eligible yet for Medicare. Well, that's a ton of people that I know personally. Yeah, a ton of people, right? And you know, in the last recession, when it was so hard for young people coming out of school to find jobs, that would have been a great solution. Hey, let's just lower the Medicare eligibility age. And all of a sudden, you'll see a bunch of baby boomers retiring from the workforce. You know, same thing. If I was able to start my business, because we were able to switch from my health insurance um, at my job to my husband's health insurance that he was able to get through his job. If it weren't for that, it really wouldn't have been a feasible financial move for our family for me to start my company. As a, an entrepreneur with a small business, I'm not able to offer the kind of competitive compensation programs and benefits that other companies can offer, right? I can't compete on health insurance and retirement, you know, fancy pensions and paid family leave programs, right? Because it's just me and a couple of employees. So leveling the playing field for small businesses is going to make it so much easier for people to start and grow and be successful in their businesses. And then their home base would be in Wisconsin, so they're less likely Absolutely. to leave. Right. We're rooted here, right? We're camping in the state parks. We're paying taxes here. Our kids are in school here. I mean, we couldn't leave if we tried. <laughs> We'd get pulled back. And you know, I think a lot of people who live here love living in Wisconsin and want to stay, but if there aren't economic opportunities, and especially in areas outside of Madison and Milwaukee, they're going to leave for greener pastures. They're going to go to the Twin Cities. They're going to go to Chicago. They're going to go to Austin. And and we're losing that talent. And we're losing all of the, the tax revenue and the vibrance of our economy. So your company, Open Homes, what exactly does that do? So we're uh, kind of a modern real estate brokerage. We, we're a high-tech brokerage, um, and we try to make the process as convenient and easy for our customers as possible because selling or buying a home is can be incredibly stressful and confusing and daunting. And um, so our goal is to use technology combined with extremely high-level personal service to make that transaction as easy as possible. We have different pricing options for people who want to sell their homes. It's not just a fixed commission rate. So you can kind of choose the package that works best for your family and your situation. And um, and we combine that with extremely high touch personal support so that you never feel like you're on your own in this process. And it's been a really fun business that we've been growing for seven years. Are you letting people, so what does it do? List the house with the MLS? Yeah. So um, just like any other um, real estate brokerage, we will list your house on the MLS. Um, we serve both buyers and sellers, so we can help you sell or buy property. We often work with first-time home buyers as well. And so a number of our agents are attorneys. And so you're getting that kind of extra little expertise from people who are very well-versed in real estate law and contract law. And then we also do things like staging advice, everything from just going into your home and kind of rearranging things and giving advice to full staging. And it really just depends on kind of what service level you need. And you know you can reap the savings by doing some of the work yourself, or you can rely on our expertise and um, we'll help you. So for anyone who's selling their house, so for anyone, this is a little bit of background. So if you're selling your house, you have to pay, mm -hmm. I think it's about 6% commission to the realtors. Yeah, that's on, on average price. Yeah. And that's the seller who pays that 6%. And the seller pays it. Yep. And they pay. Um, and that's often split between uh, the listing agent who sells the property and then the buyer's agent who represents the buyer. 
And then some of that, and then a percentage of that goes to the brokerage. So how is your company different? Our company lets you basically choose the level of commission that you want to pay. You can pay a 1% commission for listing and we'll do a certain set of services. And if you want to pay 2%, then we'll do these additional services. And if you want a full service brokerage, then you would pay us 3% on the listing side. And so we we just offer people different options. Um, it's not kind of a one size fits all deal. So if anyone's curious about that, they can go to openhomesrealty.com and look and see our different options, as well as some of the properties that we have listed right now. Well, and 3% of the value of a home is quite a bit of money that you could be saving, theoretically. It is, yeah. Even if you pay the max amount. I'm sorry? Even if you're paying that that max full-tier service of... You're right. That's a lot of money. What it works out for the value of the home. Yeah, and it, it compensates us fairly for the time that we're spending as well, for the time and the expertise that we're bringing. If you're not going to use certain services, then you don't have to pay for that. And so it lets sellers keep more of the value of their home if they're willing to do some of the legwork. And then it it also lets you choose that I just don't want to do anything. I don't want to deal with this headache. You just do everything and I don't have to worry about it anymore. So right now, in some places, there are eviction moratoriums, since you're familiar with real estate. There are eviction moratoriums, meaning if people can't pay their rent, they can't be kicked out of their house, which on level one sounds incredibly reasonable. However, often you have a small business owner who's the landlord who may just have that one rental property and they have a full-time job. And now suddenly they're stuck with their primary residence paying the rent and now this other house Mm -hmm. to pay their rent. Now, no one wants people evicted because it's the middle of a pandemic, but you also have that small business owner who owns that rental property. Yeah. I mean, you're right. From a public health perspective, it is absolutely essential that we not be evicting people because they're unable to pay the rent, right? I mean, a lot of people are really, really struggling. Um, We've had a massive economic collapse and we've got something like 30 million people who are unemployed or underemployed and even more people who are seeing a loss of income, even if they haven't lost their job, they've lost hours or they've seen their pay cut. So this is a massive economic crisis and it requires emergency support. And so from a public health perspective, we should absolutely not be allowing people to be evicted and put out on the street um, where they're going to become ill or make others ill. But we also do need to, I think, be offering much more support to renters and to basically allow people to have economic security. I think having expanded rental assistance programs is really, really important um, and making it easier for tenants to access those programs. Because one of the challenges, if you're in the working poor, for instance, and you are trying to manage your kids' virtual schooling, you're an essential worker, you're managing changing shift schedules, it's very hard to try to like navigate and figure out, are there programs out there somewhere that might be able to help me. I have no idea. And now I have to go to the library and try to research that. Oh, and by the way, everything is closed. So making it really easy for people. I mean, that's why I think the pandemic would be a perfect time to pilot some kind of a universal basic income program where people have money coming in every month that they can just rely on. And they know that $600 or $1,000 or $1,500 is going to be there. And so they know, hey, my rent is going to be paid. A couple hundred dollars of groceries is going to be paid. I can afford to give up my second job so that I can try to help my 
kid with their schooling. People need predictability. And that's true for tenants. That's true for property owners as well. Because we we don't want people evicted, but, but we also don't want small business owners going out of business and not being able to provide affordable housing anymore either. I think this obvious question is universal income on a service level seems like a great idea, but how do you pay for that? Well, we pay for all kinds of things, right? It's interesting that when we're trying to do things that help people, whether it's healthcare, education, or social services, or universal basic income, the first question is always, well, how are you going to pay for that? But when it comes to hurting each other, whether it's policing or incarceration or war or extracting more fossil fuels, we seem to have unlimited resources to put more money towards things that don't make us healthier, happier, and more peaceful. And um, it was my friend and Madison School Board member, Ali Muldrow, who first formulated it that way. And I just think it's really brilliant because when you think about public policy, we spend so much money on subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. We spend a huge amount of money bailing out airlines and cruise ships. And yet, you know, we didn't bail out teachers and renters to the extent that we should have. You know, we spent trillions of dollars on wars and on the military industrial complex and on F-35 planes that are, by all accounts, a boondoggle. And where were the accountants (laughs) on those projects? So this is actually an interesting topic because pure capitalism would say that if you have a large company and they can't be responsible enough to manage their books and manage their cash flow, then let them go bankrupt because, and that creates space for responsible companies. But if there's this persistent bailout of large companies that can't be responsible fiscally, then there's no incentive to be responsible because they know they're getting a bailout. Whereas someone who, like you said, is working poor, they're barely affording food and housing. Now they have the stress of taking care of their kids. So how is it that these large companies get billions of dollars, but a small family, people are arguing that they shouldn't get a couple hundred dollars to pay rent or food? Right. Yeah. I mean, the selective use of moral hazard is really tells you that the sort of free market economists really aren't free market. (laughs) It's only free market for some. If you can privatize the wealth and the gains and socialize the losses, you know, you've really found a great business model. Well, you know, there's that saying, some people are equal, but, or no, everyone's equal, but some people are more equal than others. Some are more equal than others. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is, it is stunning that you have these kind of budget hawk scolds saying to people who are earning seven fifty an hour, hey, you need to be saving your money. You need to have six month savings in your account. How dare you have a cell phone or whatever? And meanwhile, you've got these huge companies that are just making outrageous bets and losing like Donald Trump, <laughs> losing, losing money in a casino in Jersey, or he started out with $400 million that his dad gave him. And now decades later, he's $400 million or something in debt. That's like being the worst businessman ever. Now, objectively, I do have to say it is odd that no one brought up that all his hats are made in China. Well, there you go. Like that was never brought up in the debate at all. That's true. Was, like objectively, and I will be the first to say I am not partisan. I, I try to just look at the facts, but objectively speaking, if you're pro business and you're pro America, you should probably have your stuff made in America. Exactly. Like reasonably speaking. Yeah. Well, I mean, and we should be investing in the future of our country as well. If you're really patriotic, then you should want 
to give every child in this country the opportunity to succeed. And that means investing in making sure that every kid has a safe neighborhood, safe housing, and a great school um, and great childcare. And it's really not that expensive. You know, look at some of Elizabeth Warren's plans. She's a more responsible fiscal steward than probably any other person in the U.S. Senate. She knows the numbers and she can show how just a 2% wealth tax can help fund early childhood education and childcare for tens of millions of families around this country. That kind of shift in perspective and trying to make our tax system a little bit more fair and trying to align our spending with actual goals that are going to help this country. I mean, that could be transformative. We could live in that world. We just have to vote for it. Well, this is an interesting conversation uh, for me, hopefully it is for you, that it's it's funny seeing how all these things are interconnected because when you say you need to lock people up, no one asks about the cost to lock someone up. This is also something I feel like that isn't really talked about is that the prison system is all big business. Yeah, I mean, in Wisconsin, we do not have private prisons, but because we have so much overcrowding, we do send people to other states that have private prisons um, and pay an exorbitant cost. We spend more to incarcerate someone in a prison than we do than it would cost to spe- send that person to the University of Wisconsin for a year. So what is that the cost? Crazy. What is the cost? Because I don't know. What is the cost to incarcerate someone for a year? So, uh, it, you know, it sort of depends. The estimates are about $30,000, you know, anywhere from twenty five dollars to $40,000, depending on where they're incarcerated and you know, what kind of things they have. But the money that we're spending, we're not really getting very much for our money and for our time. I mean, if we really want people to rehabilitate, they're probably not going to do it in prison. And that's because we've cut all the money for healthcare services, behavioral health. If you have an addiction problem, which many people in prison do, you're very unlikely to be able to get treated for substance use disorder because there's going to be a wait list of years. We just don't have enough providers. If you're, um, you know, for instance, were abused as a child, which many people who are incarcerated were, getting counseling, mental health support, you're going to be waiting a long time to do that. If you want to get your GED or get educational services or have access to books, your options are going to be pretty darn limited because we've decided that it's better to just warehouse people, you know, lock them up and throw away the key, and that being in prison should be so unpleasant and punishing that, you know, we don't want anyone to do anything to better themselves or to, you know, make use of their time there. And, you know, and that's a real shame because that's a lost opportunity for people who are incarcerated. And it shows you that the goal really isn't rehabilitation. So there are people in prison for having, say, marijuana. Right. Does that serve anyone's purpose to have someone in prison for that? Um, Well, it certainly doesn't serve the public purpose. That is totally outrageous. Marijuana should be legal. It should be regulated and taxed just like alcohol is. Anyone who was incarcerated or had their penalty enhanced should be released and have that expunged from their record. We should not be locking up people for nonviolent drug offenses. We should treat substance use disorder as a mental and behavioral health issue the way that most other industrialized nations do. We should treat it as basically a public health issue and not as a criminal justice matter. There are things that are heinous that require societal punishment and being removed, right? Like Jeffrey Epstein, like the way that 
the current president has profited off the presidency in total violation of the law. So there are definitely people who deserve to be punished and deserve to be removed from society, but it is not people who are struggling with a severe mental health problem or an addiction. And right now we're just using prisons and police in lieu of having an actual public health infrastructure to assist people with these problems. So if you could release nonviolent offenders for petty crime, say, let's just use marijuana. Right. I would imagine that would be a very large cost savings to the taxpayers. Yeah, it would. In fact, about a third of people who are incarcerated in Wisconsin already served their whole sentence. They served their time and then they were let out on parole or extended supervision. And then they were reincarcerated, not for committing a new crime, but for a minor or a technical violation of their parole. And conditions of parole could be anything from you're not allowed to drive a car, you're not allowed to be in a location where anyone is drinking alcohol, you can't miss a, an appointment with your parole officer, you've got to be home by 8 p.m. It, you know, it could be these extremely restrictive rules that are really just setting people up to fail, basically reincarcerating them for these minor technical violations. And when you do that, you're taking someone who is just on the verge of when they're getting out, they're getting reestablished, they're connecting with their families, they're hopefully getting employment and housing, and you're yanking them out of that situation and putting them right back in prison and making it that much harder for them to reintegrate when they get out. It's crazy. Well, and not to mention the impact on their family. If they have kids, then that's a parent that's gone. Yeah, exactly right. So we've covered a lot of great topics Senator-elect Kelderroy, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a very educational talk. Any closing thoughts for listeners? Well, thanks for having me on, Dr. Ferguson. It's great to talk with you. I encourage people to go to IWillVote.com, request your absentee ballot, make a plan, make sure you contact your friends and family to make sure that they're voting. And not just for president, but vote for all of the races up and down the ticket and get involved. We need everyone, all hands on deck, if we want to build strong communities and have a vibrant democracy. So thanks for listening and stay safe and healthy. And just to close with, and if anyone wants to further, especially if they believe in what you've said about supporting the police, supporting teachers, supporting healthcare, um, how can they specifically help your campaign? Well, you can go to kelderbroys.com and you can make a donation. You can sign up for email updates or you can help me volunteer for one of the many candidates that I'm working to support and elect this November. Perfect. Thank you so much. And again, get educated, go out and vote. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again and see you next time.